It is such a joy to gather to hear these songs sung and to sing them ourselves. You know, it's uh, one of the things that uh, I always like uh, when our children are in here worshiping with us is sometimes they don't, they don't pay attention to the words, you know, that you have in front of them. But you know what they do see? They see the faces of the people of God worshiping God. It's one of the wonderful things about having our kids in here, even the smaller ones for a portion of the service, is that they look around and they see the passion of the hearts of the people of God as they sing praises to God. And that is, such a, that is so instructive for our children. And let me just encourage you, one of the things that uh, our gospel community group leader, Doug Cogburn, has done very effectively in our group is incorporated singing together. Uh, so there we are standing in uh, Megan and Chris Smith's living room. For most of the time it's there. And we're gathered with our kids, uh, with our song sheets, and we are singing praises to the Lord. And, and I think the same thing uh, can be said there. Our, our children are in an environment of praise. And so let me just encourage you, if you're not doing that as a gospel community group, that would be a wonderful way to have this midweek time where your children can be part of the worship of God's people. If you would, please go with me to Genesis 32. We are there this morning in chapter 32. We are getting closer and closer to the narrative of Joseph, which I find incredibly exciting. Uh, One of the stories that struck me most powerfully as a small child, four, five, six years old, uh, just was such a huge part of my development was this story of the God who was with Joseph in Egypt. And so we're going to be there shortly. I hope that that story has blessed you. And by the time that we get there, that you'll be eager to go through and see what God has for us there. But we're not there yet. We are still uh, in the early chapters of the 30s. And so today we're in chapter 32. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 21. We will not tackle the whole chapter today. You've got a lot here, especially with this wrestling episode, uh, which we will Uh, look at later, but for now we'll cover verses 1 to 21. If you're visiting with us, this is your first time. We preach expositionally through the scripture, sometimes more slowly, sometimes more quickly, Uh, but we are going through the book of Genesis. We've been here for a while, about a year and a half, and and we are are moving our way through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And for the last couple of months, we've been walking alongside of the patriarch Jacob. And so what I wanted to do this morning is we're entering into a new phase, really, of this story. So I want to just sum up briefly what we've seen so far in the life of Jacob. And so we've got, I think, four frames to the story of Jacob so far. We've got Jacob in his mother's womb, in his father's house, on his journey east, and in his uncle's house. So I want to just quickly go through those. And I want to give you a verse For each of those frames that, in a sense, really encapsulates what we're seeing in that movement of the narrative of Jacob's life. And so the first is Jacob in his mother's womb. By the way, this is not the sermon outline, as you'll see from the bulletin. This is everything in my brain is outline oriented. So you'll just have to forgive me. I outline everything in my own brain. Uh, Maybe you don't do that. It's very hard for you to listen to this, but that is how I work. So this is the introductory outline. And so what we have first is Jacob in his mother's womb. And when we come to Jacob in his mother's womb, what we see are conflict and oracle. That there, as Jacob is in his mother's womb with Esau, his twin, 
that there is this wrestling going on, this conflict in the womb. And so the mother goes to the Lord and asks the Lord what is going on. And the Lord gives an oracle of what is happening between these two boys in the womb and what that means for them. And so that's where we come to Genesis 25, 23. This is the first kind of passage to hang your hat on, first verse to, to, uh, to hang ourselves on here as we, as we look at this story. Genesis 25, 23, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And so that's frame one. We get Jacob in his mother's womb, and we have God saying, look, this is what's going to happen in the future. I've chosen, Paul will explain uh, more later, I've chosen Jacob, not Esau, and there will be conflict between them. And then we come to the second portion of the Jacob story, which is Jacob and his father's house. And when we look at Jacob and his father's house, we really just get these two scenes, the birthright scene and the blessing scene. Jacob goes to his brother. Well, Esau comes in from a long hunt. Esau's starving. Jacob has been premeditatively waiting for this moment. And so he speaks to his brother and says, look, I'll give you a bowl of soup if you sell me your birthright. Whatever, Esau says. He doesn't care about the birthright. So he gives the birthright to Jacob, the twin who came out second, sells him the birthright. And then later we see Jacob deceiving his father, his blind father, his older blind father, to take the blessing from Esau. He pretends to be Esau and receives the blessing from his father. And all of this can be encapsulated with this verse from chapter 27, verse 36. Esau said... Is he not rightly named Jacob? Jacob means he who grasps the hill or he who deceives. It could be taken that way. Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And so we have Jacob in his mother's womb, conflict and oracle. We have Jacob in his father's house, birthright and blessing. And then we saw Jacob on his journey east. So his brother wants to kill him. His mom finds out and says, Jacob, you've got to get out of here. You need to go to your distant relatives eastward toward Mesopotamia. And then Isaac blesses Jacob and sends him east. And the verse that encapsulates that moment is Genesis 28, 15. Behold, I am with you, the Lord says to Jacob on his journey. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So we see there the Lord blesses him and protects him. He's on a journey all alone. He's homeless with nothing. And the Lord comes to him on this journey from Canaan to Mesopotamia and speaks these words of promise and reassurance to him. And then the last frame that we were in was Jacob in his uncle's house. God directs him. God disciplines him. God prospers him and protects him while he is in Laban's house. We know that Laban is his uncle. He goes there. He wants to marry one daughter. The night before, Laban switches them, gives him the other daughter. He has to work another seven years. He works 14 years total for both daughters. And then we know that all of these children are born to Jacob during this period. And so his family grows and grows and grows. Laban tricks him, deceives him, takes advantage of him, mistreats him. And all the while, the Lord is blessing him and prospering him and watching over 
him. And if you want a verse that pulls all of that together, Genesis 31, 43. This is Jacob speaking to Laban after he has escaped, essentially, from Laban's grasp at the Lord's call. He says this, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. So that is what we were in. That's what we were looking at, Jacob and Laban's house. We were there for several weeks. And now we come into chapter 32. So that gives you a little bit of a flyover of the history of Jacob so far. As we enter into this new phase, as we come into chapter 32, Jacob is moving back to the promised land with a large family. And much wealth. God has been faithful to Jacob. Just as he had promised, I will be with you. I will watch over you. I will bring you back to this land. Well, now he's leaving his deceitful uncle's home and he's headed back. But, but, now he must face his brother Esau. And the last time Esau was mentioned was right before Jacob journeyed east. And this is what we read. The last time Esau played into the narrative, we read this in Genesis 27, 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, listen to this, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. So so here is Jacob. He's leaving Laban. He's leaving this servitude under his uncle slash father-in-law. And now he is moving back to the promised land. And he must now face Esau. The last word he heard from Esau was that he hated him and wanted to kill him. And now he's moving in that direction. So the title for the sermon this morning is Facing Danger. And you'll see this in your bulletin, Facing Danger. Danger. I just want to say to make this, to bring this home to us, to make this practical for us so that we enter into what God is saying to his people. Because by the way, God speaks to his people in every age through every story in the Bible. So we're not doing a history lesson. That's not what preaching is. Preaching is not a history lesson. Preaching is the word of God for the people of God. But we must enter into the text. We must enter into the, to the story. We must enter into this period in redemptive history. But it is always speaking. The Bible is always speaking to the people of God now. The Bible is speaking to us today. And I think it speaks to those of us who may be facing danger. As elders, we have, I think, the privilege of being involved in the lives of God's people in a very detailed way. And knowing the struggles that people are having and the, the, the things that are faced by God's people here at Four Corners. And I know that some of you are facing danger. Danger is not necessarily going to harm you, but danger, by definition, is the possibility of suffering harm. And so you're looking out into a possibility and you, in your own mind, and maybe in reality, are facing danger danger. So today I think we can gain some insight 
into what it looks like for the people of God to be in that position. We are seeing through Jacob what it looks like for God's people, his chosen ones, his beloved ones, his blessed ones, his children, his people, to be facing danger. So if you would, please go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading Genesis 32, verses 1 to 21. This is God's holy word. It is perfect and profitable. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And God said, And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, And God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. Two hundred female goats and twenty male goats, two hundred ewes and twenty rams, thirty milking camels and their calves, forty cows and ten bulls, twenty female donkeys and ten Male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed that night in the camp. You can go ahead and be seated. You can, you can feel Jacob's distress if you're reading through this. 
You, you wince when you come to verse 6, where it says, he is coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. The force of that can be felt even knowing where the story is going. That is, that Esau is not going to harm Jacob. And even not being in it yourself, you, you feel the weight of that message that Jacob receives. So let's pray to the Lord and ask his blessing on our time in his word today. And that we would understand it rightly and apply it. That we would ask the Holy Spirit to apply it rightly to our own individual hearts. Father, we are grateful for your word. We know that it is your revelation to your people. God, you gave this to Israel as they were encamped in the wilderness. And as they heard this, they were reminded of what faced them. Many battles stood before them, stood before them and their commander, Joshua. Many struggles as they would enter the land, but you assured them that you were with them. And here we are today, Father, reading these words so many years later, encountering this story, and Father, some of us facing impending danger. Some of us looking right in the face of a big what if, and it doesn't look good. Father, we pray that you administer to each of us this morning. None of us knows what lies ahead. And Father, none of us really knows the dangers that are in front of us, but we know that you are our God, that the God of Jacob is our God. And so, Father, we ask you this morning that you would remind us of this one powerful truth, that in the face of danger, you are with us, and that that would be enough. We pray, Father, that we would lean on you and rely on you in faith. We ask that you would teach us now from your holy word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So three things to consider this morning as we go through this portion of chapter 32. And you'll find these on your bulletin. Three things to consider. First, the hopeful departure. Second, the fearful situation. And third, the bountiful appeasement. So let's look at each of these. First, the hopeful departure. Look at verses 1 to 5. It's nice when we have a smaller passage. We can take and put the spotlight on it once again and then take it in as a unit. So let's, look at, let's do that with verses 1 to 5. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. I think that we could probably use three words to unpack what we have in these introductory verses. As we think about this hopeful Departure. Three words, separation, visitation, and salutation. And what we'll find is that in each of these, we see hope. Each of these leaves the reader with a hopeful impression. So let's look at each of them. First, separation. In verse 1, we get these words. He went on his way. 
Now, it would be really easy to just gloss over those words and go on and skip to the next thing, but those are very important words. He went on his way from where? He went on his way from Laban. From Laban for 20 years he has been mistreated by this man. For 20 years he has been held under Laban's thumb. So when he departs, he departs, he goes on his way from Laban. But not just from Laban, as though he escaped and that was it. But he went on his way from a treaty with Laban. And not just a treaty, a peace agreement with Laban, but a treaty that was explicitly meant to set up a boundary marker between Jacob and Laban. In other words, at this point, you are to feel the weight. We are to feel the weight of there being no more possible threat from Laban. And someone, I believe it was Stan this week, we, we linked up with their gospel community group over at the new building to put together the chairs. And I think it was Stan Sullen who said that all of the events that we read in that previous narrative are really meant to put uh, this, that as we look at the, the stealing of the gods by, by Rachel and the fleeing, uh, in, in the fleeing away that, that Jacob does, that God's providence is working even in the sinfulness of these people because by doing those things, it forces Laban to chase down Jacob. And by forcing Laban to chase down Jacob, it forces Laban into a treaty with Jacob. You see, if those things wouldn't have happened, maybe Laban would have just said, fine, let him go. Let him go. But then later, like Pharaoh, remember, later decided, no, this is no good. And then gone out and gotten Jacob. But he was forced out into a peace treaty with Jacob. And what that does at this point in the story is it cuts off, as I said before, any possibility that Laban will now come for Jacob. So we have release, we have freedom, we have deliverance. This is a hopeful Circumstance. This is a hopeful context. This is a new chapter without Laban and surrounded by blessings. Without Laban, with blessings, with no threat of future attack. So it's hopeful for that reason because of the separation. But secondly, we see visitation. This is most important here in these verses. Verse 1, the angels of God met him. Now, it's incredible when you get these stories in the Bible of God sending angels to meet with his people. <clears throat> we get that throughout Scripture. But this is one of those instances where God sends these messengers, these heavenly messengers, much as we saw with the two angels and the Lord who came to Abraham at his tent. And reassured Abraham and had a covenant meal with Abraham and, and spoke words that reassured Sarah. And then the two angels went and destroyed Sodom. And Gomorrah. But here we have the angels coming to Jacob. And if you're reading this in context, you realize that this is reminiscent of chapter 28, verse 12, when all of this started with the Lord and Jacob together in covenant, the God of Jacob. Chapter 28, verse 12, the angels of God were ascending and descending. Jacob is on a stone sleeping, he has a dream, and he dreams of a ladder, and there are angels ascending and descending. Between earth and heaven. Between Jacob and his circumstances and the Lord. Angels ascending and descending. So when the angels meet him here. It could not help but remind him of when God had first come to him. There on his journey. It is a visual of God's watchful care. 
What has gone before is what goes ahead. Listen to that. What has gone before, the Lord is saying to Jacob, everything you've experienced, everything you've ascribed to my watchful care, that same setup is what goes with you now into the future. So the past is going to be mirrored in the future. And it's not just one or a couple of angels, right? But a camp, a camp of angels. And he calls it God's camp. And he goes on to name it. And that word mayanea means two camps. What is he saying? There's my camp and there is the Lord's camp. There's me and there's the camp with me. Just as the Lord told him in chapter 28, I will be with you. So we see hope in the separation, hope in the visitation. But now finally we see hope in the salutation. Jacob greets Esau by sending messengers. It's been 20 years. Jacob's tone is respectful and humble. Your servant Jacob, my Lord Esau. And he also tells Esau of all that he has. He will not be a threat to him, Jacob is saying. Look, I've got all of this stuff. He's humbling himself under Esau. He's, he's, he's showing courtesy and respect to Esau, deference to Esau. And he's saying, essentially, I've got all of this stuff. I'm not coming to take your stuff. I've got plenty, my brother or my Lord. He says to him. There really is no indication here of anxiety or fear on Jacob's part. He's, he's hopeful as he approaches his brother. So to sum it up, Jacob is setting out on a new chapter with God's mighty protection. Although he is facing the danger of a hostile brother, he is reassured that God is with him. The mistreatment and aggression of Laban are things of the past. The same watchful care of the Lord that he has experienced over the last 20 years is going with him into the next chapter of his life. And he is approaching his brother in the best possible way. So what you need to see here is that as he departs from Laban to move towards the promised land, this is a hopeful departure. So let's just pause for a moment and just think about what this means for us, some implications for us. And I think they're very basic. But the one that you may not consider is this, and that is that God prepares us to face danger. That is precisely what is happening here. The Lord knows what message Jacob is about to get regarding Esau. The Lord knows all that will go through his mind and all that lies ahead in his life in these next days and moments. And what the Lord is doing is preparing him to face danger. And what we need to understand about the Lord is that he's always doing that on behalf of his people. He is always working in such a way to prepare us for the fights we will have to endure, to prepare us for the temptations we will have to face, to prepare us for the suffering that we will have to walk through. We saw this in chapter 22. Remember Abraham? God comes to him and gives him this great test. And one of the things that was mentioned there is that this great test 
This massive test of Abraham's faith does not come in a context without little tests. That all throughout Abraham's life, it is as if God has been preparing him for that moment. Giving him what he needed to face that trial. That's what the Lord's doing in our lives. So that means that any trial you step into, any dangerous situation that you find yourself in, you can be confident that the Lord has been working previously to prepare you for that moment. So God prepares us. Secondly, God is watching over us with his holy angels. There are angels. They are real beings. They are just as real as you and I. They are incorporeal beings, meaning they do not have bodies. They are immaterial beings. They are not made of matter. They are just as real as we are. And they are ministering spirits, as Hebrews tells us, ministering spirits sent out by God to watch over us, to care for God's people. Psalm 34, 7, which was read earlier by Josh It says this, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. What comforting words those are for the people of God. That everywhere you go, there is a camp. There is God's camp. There is God's ladder. Everywhere you find yourself in the hospital, in the MRI machine, talking with a friend that you haven't talked with a long time who has bitterness towards you or anger, Facing adultery, facing sickness, facing depression, anxiety, loss of your job, loss of a loved one. In every single situation, there is a ladder and a camp for the people of the Lord. So God is watching over us. He prepares us, but he also reassures us. And this is, this is really good to know for the people of God. And it's this, God cares about our cares. So when we feel distress, God cares. He, he sympathizes, Jesus, Jesus, it says in Hebrews, he sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. That we don't go through any moment of fearfulness or distress, anxiety, depression. We don't move through any emotion apart from the care of the Lord, even when it's silly. I mean, how often do we have all these crazy emotions that come out of our hearts and we just ride our emotions? By the way, if you ride your emotions, they'll lead you only down. Even if you're a cheerful person, we're not meant to live by fickle emotions, ever-changing. And yet, the Lord rides with us along the emotions of our lives. He cares about our Cares. And that's the reason why Peter will say in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your cares on him because he cares about you. What do you need to give to the Lord this morning? What cares do you need to give to the God who prepares you to face danger, who protects you in the midst of danger, and who cares about your distresses? What do you need to give him this morning? What do you need to cast upon him? So we have the hopeful departure Now we come secondly to the fearful situation. Look at verses 6 to 12. 6 to 12. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, 
We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan. And now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. In these verses, hope has turned into fear. And not just fear. This is pure terror that Jacob is facing at this moment. He is terrified of what these messengers come back to tell him. A hopeful departure has now become a fearful situation. And we see this situation, I think, in three things as it unfolds here in these verses. Three things, the report, the response, and the request as we go through verses 6 to 12. So let's look at these. First, the report. The report. Earlier, Jacob sent messengers to Esau. And we don't really know what exactly he was thinking at the time. It's unclear what, what is going through Jacob's mind when he first sends these messengers. I mean, he knows that Esau wanted to kill him. But I mean, that was two decades ago. 20 years it has been. It's unclear what is going through Jacob's mind. We don't get a heightened state of anxiety and fear, but we know that Jacob would be cognizant that he was moving into a dangerous situation, a potentially destructive situation. We don't really detect the fear and anxiety at that point, but now the messengers return and this is what they report. Verse 6, we came, we came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. I mean, who knows how these messengers approached? Did they walk up and just kind of uh, with, with fear, a fearful face themselves and say this, or did they run? Did they run to Jacob to tell him that this is the situation? What we know is there's nothing about the disposition of these messengers that gives Jacob any comfort whatsoever. No words of greeting from Esau at all. Oh, tell him, hey, and we're coming. No, nothing. Silence and force. Whether it will turn out to be force or not is beside the question at this point, beside the point, because here it is a force for Hundred men. Four hundred men are with him. This is a small militia coming out to meet Jacob. You will remember back in Genesis 14, maybe. Remember when Lot is taken, he's living over in Sodom foolishly, and the, the Sodomites are taken away by these invading kings. And remember, Abraham musters all of his men, his servants, and he goes out to take Lot back. And how many men does he have? He has 318 
men. Well, undoubtedly, Jacob would have known that story, right? It's a massive story in the life of Abraham. You imagine uh, Jacob in the tents and Abraham living for, for 15 years during the life of Jacob. And Jacob there in the tents, hearing Abraham tell all of these stories. You know, grandfathers, they tell a lot of stories. Great grandfathers tell even more stories. Telling stories about his life. Undoubtedly, Jacob would have heard the story of the 318 trained men who went out and took on an army and took back Lot. Well, now it's 400 men coming out to meet Jacob with no word of greeting, just an approach. So that's first, the report. Second, we have the response. Jacob responds to this report both psychologically and practically. We see his response psychologically and practically. Psychologically speaking, it shatters him. Verse 7, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He just goes into a tizzy. This shatters him psychologically. It is as though... This has entirely kicked out of his mind all the reassurance that the Lord had just given him. That's interesting, right? I mean, the Lord has just come to him through angels, these majestic beings, these holy, powerful beings. And this is God's camp. They are camping with him. They are beside him. They are ready to fight for him. 400 men are nothing compared to one angel. Especially a whole camp of them. But it is as though this fearful report just kicks right out of his mind all the reassurances that the Lord has just given him. And I think this is the case with us, right? How quickly, how quickly a fearful report can eclipse God's truth in our mind. We walk into things all the time in life and we're just going through our lives and we, we hear from the word. This is one of the reasons why we get up in the morning. We should get up in the morning and read God's word is we hear from the Lord. He speaks to us through his word just as he spoke to Jacob in a dream, just as he came and spoke to the patriarchs in various ways. Every time we open up his word, he speaks to us. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. He speaks And we hear his word and we have his word, but then danger comes, fear comes, unexpected challenge comes, bing, just knocks right out of our minds all the reassuring graces of the Lord. All the truth, the rock solid truth of God, gone. Fear and danger replaces it. How often are we like Jacob? Well, That's psychologically, but practically we see his response. He divides the camp into two, thinking that if one is massacred, the other will escape. So while Esau and his 400 men are busy beating up, hacking up, whatever it is they're going to do, this one camp of Jacob's people and animals, the other camp will be able to potentially scurry away to safety. That's his plan. The one who has been shown, this is the irony of this, the one who has been shown that there are already two camps makes for himself two camps. He has forgotten about the second camp. 
Third, we see the request. And I love this portion. This is Jacob's prayer. What a, what a wonderful prayer. How instructive. that You could just preach an entire sermon on this prayer. After making this minor provision for himself by dividing up his camp into two, Jacob does the only thing that he can do. He entreats the Lord to help him. And there is, there is such a simplicity and a pitifulness here with this prayer. I mean, he is just calling out to God. He's crying. The poor man cried out to God and God heard him, just as we heard earlier from Psalm 34. I mean, this is Jacob just throwing himself upon the Lord, casting himself entirely. He has no other recourse. He's in the middle of nowhere and he has already done the only thing he can do. He's divided his camp into two and now he can do nothing. So he entreats the Lord. He throws himself on the Lord. And it's interesting here when you look at this prayer, so much to learn from this prayer. But he throws himself on the Lord's identity, the Lord's word, and the Lord's character. Notice that. When he prays to God, he throws himself on God. As he does that, he's got in view these three things. Identity, word, and character. Who is he? He's the God of Abraham and Isaac. That's who he is. Not a generic God of Laban's treaty. Not these little worthless figurines that we saw last week, but the God of Abraham and Isaac. The God who gave the barren Sarah a child. The God who gave the barren Rebecca a child. The God who has been with his father and his grandfather. The God who called and promised So Jacob refers to God's promises. This is what you've told me, God. You called me to this place. I'm out here in the middle of nowhere because of you. You called me here and you made promises to me, God. This is what you say. Jacob says to the Lord, thus says the Lord. He says to the Lord, you said, God, you said. Prayer and Bible reading are inextricably linked. Do you see that? And the God who has shown steadfast love and faithfulness. This encapsulates God's character. We saw this with Abraham's servant sent to Mesopotamia. He gets there and he talks about God's steadfast love and his faithfulness. His loyalty, his kindness, and his unending covenant-keeping love. He is faithful and he shows this loyal love perpetually. And I wonder, as we think about this, as we watch Jacob... Throwing himself on God, throwing himself on God's identity, God's word, God's character. As we see Jacob doing this, I wonder how often do we pray without recognizing who we are praying to? We just start talking. And it's as though we're really just praying to pagan idols or praying even to ourselves. I mean, how often is our praying talking to ourselves or praying to some general notion of deity. We pray often without recognizing who we're even praying to. And often without gratitude for past faithfulness. Do you see how this prayer, this is fascinating. Do you see how this prayer from Jacob, one of the great prayers that we've gotten so far in Genesis, is is really the, the same structure that we find in the Lord's Prayer? 
there in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount? What do you begin with? You begin with our Father in heaven, who God is. Hallowed be your name. You are glorious. Your attributes are manifold. Your perfections, your beauty, your power, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we pray, give us this day our daily bread. That's what we see here. Recognition of who he is talking to. Our little requests really are like the cherry on top of all of this substantive prayer that recognizes God as our God. So we see that he throws himself on the Lord. He recognizes that God owes him nothing. He is unworthy of all that God has done for him. Verse 10, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan. And now I have become two camps. That's incredible. When you listen to this language, 20 years, he looks around and he sees all these people. He sees all these animals. He sees all this wealth and he just falls on his face before God. He says, God, I'm not worthy of anything that you have done for me. How often do we pray in entitlement? God, what are you doing up there? You need to act on my behalf. Who are you, oh man? Who is any of us? To approach God in any other way than what we find here. I am not worthy of the least. I, he, he wasn't even worthy of the staff. Neither are you and neither am I. We're not worthy of any of God's blessings. We deserve hell. We deserve hell. Because we are rebel sinners. But all we have, we have because of God's covenant-keeping grace. His steadfast love, his faithfulness tells us that we pray out of utter humility and unworthiness. That's how we talk to God. That's how we come to him. And then after all of this, notice, this is incredible. After a recognition of who God is and a recognition of who he is, then and only then he makes his request. And he says, please, please. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. Lord, I'm scared. You see the honesty of that prayer. I mean, pray that way to God. I'm scared, God. I'm afraid. I'm afraid that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. He literally believes that his entire family could be massacred. He's not just worried about himself. You know that if you're a parent. The thought of someone attacking you and harming you, that's not a very pleasant thought. The thought of someone harming your child, much more difficult to bear. That's what we see here. It's not just himself he's worried about. Oh, Esau might kill me. It's not just that. Esau may come and kill everyone. He's a godless man. And he is an angry man. And Jacob stole everything that Esau thought he was entitled to. Took it. He could kill everyone. Finally, we need to see that his concern is greater than himself or his family. I love this part. So verse 12, but you said, this is Jacob talking to the Lord, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. What is Jacob saying when he says that? 
What he's saying is this. This is so important. The protection of Jacob and his family is not, listen, is not just the protection of Jacob and his family. The protection of Jacob and his family is the protection of these grand promises of a nation and a seed who will be a blessing to everyone, every family on the earth. There's a hint here of all the the power and weight of the seed promise going back to Adam and Eve. Do you see that? Even in these words, Jacob is, as it were, kingdom-minded in his prayer. He's recognizing the fact that more is at stake than his own breath, than his own family. Another implication I think it's important before we move on. Why did Jacob have to endure this? You may be asking that question. I mean, Esau's not going to harm him. It's unclear, though, what, what, at what point you know, Esau's, motiv- what, you know, Esau's motivations were. Was he angry at first, and then on the way he wasn't angry anymore? Or was he never angry? He was just coming out with 400 men because that's how he goes. That's, that's what he does. I mean, when he moves from place to place, he brings swords and men. I mean, it doesn't say swords, but, but that's how he moves around. It, it, that's not entirely clear, but the question is, if Esau was never going to hurt Jacob, why does the Lord providentially have it to where Jacob has to endure all this intense anxiety, right? I mean, why? Why? Why, God? Just let the man know. Let the man know it's going to be okay. Let the man know Esau's not going to kill him and his children. Let the man know that it's not going to be violent. I like what Calvin says here. The Lord willed that his servant should be oppressed with this anxiety for a time, so that he might be more prayerful. You know, it's not just crying out to the Lord to take away your anxiety. You're worried, you're fearful, like Jacob here. I don't know how you could really be more fearful than this. I mean, this is pretty bad. Whatever it is, whatever the anxiety, the stress, the distress that you feel, whatever it is, it might be the Lord's means of driving you to your face. Like Jacob, in utter humility, debasement, confession of sin, unworthiness, recognition of the glory of God, and trusting in his provisions. Focus there a little more than focusing on having the anxiety removed. We often just want life to be real happy and comfortable, and when it's not, we get frustrated with the Lord. But the Lord doesn't have the same plan for our lives that we do. So we've looked at the hopeful departure and the fearful situation. And now we come to the bountiful appeasement as we finish up this morning. Look at verses 13 to 21. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats. 200 ewes and 20 rams. 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. 
He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face, perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. You know, it's a little weird to us reading about camels and donkeys, we talked about before, these sorts of things going ahead as presents and gifts. But this is the material gain and wealth of that time. This is, uh, this is the sort of thing that would have been an, a, an appeasement to Esau. This is the sort of thing that would have been considered great wealth. We could sum up these, ver- these verses with one word, and it is appeasement, as I said before. Appeasement. Jacob is trying to appease or pacify his Brother, And this is absolutely extravagant. I mean, count these animals. Just count them. 500, more than 500 animals are sick. Can you even imagine this? I mean, Esau's looking around. He's got all, he doesn't know, what do I do with all these things? I only have 400 men. He's got all of these animals there with him. This is extravagance. Even more they are sent in waves. <laughs> Jacob is quite a planner. He's quite a schemer. We saw that with the, you know, the sticks and peeling the sticks. And we saw that with the birthright. You know, he's waiting. He's got soup cooking. Esau's about to come in. He's ready. He, he, he's, he goes in and he's, he's very slick with his father, Isaac. We know that Jacob is quite a schemer. He is quite a planner. And here we have him sending them in waves to overwhelm Esau with Jacob's gifts. So wave number one. You know that feeling, you know, when you're, when you're a child and you open up your first present on Christmas morning. Your children are terrible about this, you know. You have to like constantly press them to say, thank you. Thank you for my present. So there they are. They get their present, their first present. They open it up. Ten seconds. Boom. It's gone. The next one. And then it's like, and then you get to the end and it's like, um. Do, do I have any, any more presents? <laughs> but each of us remembers, each of us remembers that in Adamness that we experienced as children in that way. We want more and more and more. And so what we have here, I think, is that sense that you've got wave number one. As soon as Esau gets maybe uh, comfortable in that or familiar with that, boom, wave number two. And there's camels. And then there's another wave and a number wave and another wave. Coming at Esau. And even more, each time they are sent, there is a message. This is incredible. I mean, this is it's ridiculous, even. Each time they are sent, there is a message. A present for my Lord Esau. And we get this later when he approaches him, he's bowing down the whole time he's approaching him. I mean, it really is. It's it's almost sad. It is comical and it is sad. It is a present for my Lord Esau. Your servant Jacob is behind us. This is the message that each drove is to deliver to Esau. As we finish up this morning, it is a little difficult to make sense of what is going on in these verses. On the one hand, we could see this as a humble attempt to reconcile with his brother. We can say, look at how generous Jacob is here. I mean, look at this. He is such a reconciler. He is such a peacemaker. He is, he's approaching his brother and he's heaping up this, this restitution for what he had done to his brother. 
Now he is trying to make this restitution to Esau to make things right. Forgive me, brother. I sinned against you. Maybe you could go in that direction. But I don't think that's the right direction. I think what we see here should be taken a little differently. And I think Calvin, once again, sums this up very well. This is what he says. In his attempt to appease his brother with presents, Jacob was showing that he was distrusting God, as if he doubted whether he would be safe under his protection. It is a common fault among men that when they have prayed to God, they then forget God and trust in their own devices. But the point of prayer is to wait for the Lord in silence and quietness. So I think that's what's going on with Jacob. He is doing everything he can to appease, to pacify his brother. It's one of those things where we pray to the Lord. We say, God, help me. And then we stop our prayer. Amen. And then we get on as an atheist, right? So we we pray to the triune God, believing in him as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Live like an atheist. Live as though we did not just pray. We did not just recognize who he is. We did not just recognize what he's done. We just go on about it with our little tactics and schemes and devices to make things right in our lives rather than trusting, really trusting the Lord. Now, that doesn't say to us we shouldn't do things. We've seen that with Abraham. You do things, you prepare, you think, you reason with wisdom. But do so in trust, not in this kind of extravagant silliness, this kind of utter human pacifying behavior. So we finish our passage today, and we are reminded of our propensity. We've looked at God's preparations. God prepares us for danger. We've looked at prayer in the midst of danger. And now as we come to the end, we are reminded of our propensity that we always have to fight against as Christians. We always have to wage war on this battlefield. The battlefield of turning to our own devices, as Calvin says, rather than facing fear with the Lord. We face fear on our own. The Christian is not someone who lives in independence from God. We live always depending on his provisions. And he will provide. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your faithfulness to the patriarchs 4,000 years ago. Your faithfulness to their descendants just 500 years later in Egypt, in slavery, as you sent Moses and you brought them out. Your faithfulness to them to give them your law and the tabernacle so that they might approach you and consider their sin and your holiness. You gave them prophets, priests, and kings. Father, we know that all of that pointed to the one who himself is true Israel. The one who is the prophet, the priest, and the king. And Father, we thank you that even in a story like this, you were preserving us. That even in a story like this, we are seeing the preservation of the people in this room.
As you preserve Jacob and his offspring, you were preserving the line of the Christ. And as you preserve the line of the Christ, you are preserving us. Father, we are so grateful for our story, the story of your redemption of your people. This is our story, God. It is your story. We praise you for it. We ask that we would respond in accordance with your will by the power of your spirit for the sake of Christ's glory. In Jesus' name, amen.